0: Again, I'd like to welcome everybody back tonight. Also welcome the visitors that we have. I'm so glad everybody could make it. Again, we do have several of our number who are gone to uh, Tri-State, but like I said, it's it's good to have everybody here tonight. Do wanna, before I start, just kinda, I'd had some, I'd, once a month I take injections for this stuff that's supposed to help me stop bone deterioration. Kind of had a bad reaction to it. Basically I itch. So if I was taking Benadryl for it, but if I have to stop and it looks like a basset hound trying to scratch his back ear, yeah, it's just, that's all it is. But uh, we're about over it. Like I said, that was Thursday, but it still itches. Uh, An introduction, I just want to thank the elders and also thank Doug for this opportunity. just really do appreciate these opportunities that I have to uh, stand up and and, uh, preach before you it really does help both with studies and also being able to deliver a sermon Uh, and I do consider it a privilege and like I said it definitely helps with my further my studies with God's in God's Word and I know I've said this before relayed this story before but every time I get up here I'm reminded it's probably, like I said, 1976. Uh, I was a teenager, and uh, we attended church in prior, and they'd come up with a plan that they were gonna be, you know, us young men were gonna start, as teenagers, de- delivering sermons. And uh, as usual, it started out, me and my cousin, were usually about the only two, and then they dropped it. But, or at least we the only two, they would get up there. And uh, on the very first time, uh, Church here started at six, church in prior started at seven. That guy, I guess, it would have been Elvis Denny anyway. Um, we came up here first and then delivered the same sermon in prior. So, this right here in Shoto was the very first time that I actually delivered a sermon. So, it's kind of ironic, and that full circle, you know, just reminds me of that every time I get up here. Um, and it does remind me that God, you know, it's a humbling kind of experience or thought that, you know, God does have a plan for us in our lives. Uh, He does have a purpose in our life, and we're to use those talents that God's blessed us with uh, to do his will, and we need to be reminded of that every now and then. Uh, Most anybody that you've listened to any of my sermons, uh, you've probably noticed that I love to go back and re-examine what a lot of people call so-called Sunday school stories. And uh, those are usually stories that I feel we don't give enough weight to and we can just consider them for some reason as children's stories instead of actual accounts. And, uh, but several years ago, when I saw that I was spending more time studying God's or studying man's laws and regulations instead of God's laws and God's will, I mean, I realized uh, that I'd been putting off basically what I really should be doing and using those talents. But uh, as I go through these uh, studies, I just find it ironic uh, in that course schedule, whenever I come across one of these uh, stories, that after a deeper study into that subject, that it gives a whole new and more in-depth understanding of God's will and God, the story God's trying to convey to us and, and what all it means and especially what it means to us and our plan of salvation and what we're doing. And I know I've used that term Sunday school story a few times already, and I've learned one thing from this preacher training course that I'm taking is that mankind, as well as many within the church, regard these biblical accounts as just that. Simply as Sunday school stories for children, they don't give them the credit or the weight they deserve as factual biblical accounts in God's word, nor do they give them the emphasis they deserve as information from God that's critical for our understanding of his word and understanding that plan of salvation. And one of those accounts is the story of Cornelius the Centurion, as recorded by Luke and the physician in the book of Acts in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, We're given that account of Peter in chapter 10 And then Peter's confronted and has to uh, recount that story again in chapter 11. And surprisingly enough, Peter, he's confronted by the apostles and the brethren in Judea when he returns, you know, to them for what he's done. Now there's several things that our Lord's provided in this account. Uh, These two chapters are a wealth of information that I feel is critical for us even today, today. Uh, but first I want to stress point that this is a, an actual, factual account of an actual person, uh, an actual people. Cornelius, the centurion, was an actual person who can be accounted for in history, uh, just, just as real as George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you see Cornelius, he was a centurion in the Italian, Italian cohort, and stated in Acts 10.1. The Roman army consisted of numerous conscripts from several conquered nations, which at the time made up the Roman Empire and the Roman army, and over time these regiments would occupy a region, and then naturally over time that regiment would slowly be integrated with new recruits from the region being occupied. I mean, there's one fact of war, and that is that soldiers die, soldiers will get killed. They have to be replaced. Today's times, we have bases within the United States. Here stateside, we routinely transport new troops to the area of conflict and we rotate units. We send replacements, supplies, and support to those units in that theater of operation. But back in 40 AD, they didn't have that luxury. Those units and regiments had to be more or less self-sufficient. They would secure their supplies from that area that they were occupying. And this would also be true for replacement troops as soldiers were killed and replacements were needed. But history records that there were certain regiments within the Roman army that over time they pretty much maintained their original heritage. And these these Italian regiments, those were one of them. So both Romans and the Italians maintained records during these times of these units. So we can know a certain fact that Cornelius was an Italian. But he was a centurion, one who had authority over 100 soldiers in the Roman army and a cohort consisted of 1,000 soldiers. So there were 10 centurions in a cohort. Now, compared to the structure of the United States Army, Cornelius, you could probably compare him to either a sergeant major or, or master sergeant, with one exception, and that being in today's Army, we have officers that are in charge of, of units, platoons, companies, battalions. Uh, the officers in the Roman Army were pretty much political appointees, and they would be considered, you know, what we considered the person as the sergeant or master sergeant, would be the person that would be the, the planner, be the person responsible, person actually of running everything. So Cornelius, he was, a, he was an important and powerful person at that time. He was what would be considered the backbone of that Ro- Roman army in that region. But even given these facts, after studying the conversion of Cornelius, I almost feel that Cornelius was a man whose devotion and faith even before his conversion rivals that of many so-called Christians today. Now, it might rub some people a little wrong wrong way, but to borrow a line from Paul Harvey, save that judgment until you hear the rest of the story. We're told at the beginning of this account in Acts 10.2 that Cornelius was a devout person. And in Acts 10.7, it also says that he was... He also had a devout soldier in his command. Now the word used here as devout always is used in religious connotation. Plus we read in Acts 10 too that Cornelius feared God with all his house. Because the way that it's stated using the, the singular tense of God, we know, know that Cornelius was devoted to the one true God versus the traditional thinking of most Romans which believed in multiple gods. So the singular use of the word here points out that he definitely, definitely believed in one true God. But he not only was devoted to God, but he exercised this influence over his family. He feared God and so did they. This indicates that Cornelius brought up his family in the admiration, fear, and respect of God. We also read in Acts 10, too, that Cornelius gave much alms to the people. The word people here references the Jewish population. Now, Palestine had conquered Rome almost 100 years prior to that. Cornelius was a soldier of an occupying army who was sent there to control those people. Yet, he extended kindness over the people that he was sent there to control and to rule over. Also in Acts 2, we read that Cornelius prayed to God always. This means that Cornelius prayed to the Lord regularly, which he probably adopted from watching the Jewish people who prayed three times a day as they were commanded. This was instituted by David. We read in Psalm 55, 17 where it says, Evening and morning and noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he will hear my voice. Now could this indicate that Cornelius prior to his salvation spent more time in prayer than many Christians do today? We also read in Acts 10.22 that Cornelius was a just man and also that he had a good report among the nation of the Jews. Now as a general rule, the Jews hated the Roman soldiers. The Romans of course were an occupying force like we said earlier. They had conquered the Jews and were rulers over them. For Cornelius to overcome their animosity by his character and his generosity is an overwhelming statement of this man's character. And this reminds me immediately of Matthew 7, 16 says, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So. To think that of what Cornelius must have done to be so highly revered by the Jews is a statement, a, a heavy statement, to how much of a fine person he must have been. But in all that, Cornelius was still lost. He needed to hear the words by which he and his family could be saved, Acts 11:14. Cornelius was religious. He was a devout man. He was moral and Cornelius was even benevolent to the people, but still Cornelius was lost. Till he ex- experienced the birth of the water and the spirit which Jesus spoke of in John 3, 3-5, he still was lost no matter how much of a good person he was. There is yet another reason we should, we should learn from this example of the conversion of Cornelius. That being, no matter how good a person may be, no matter how much of a good heart they have, they are still lost in sin unless they believe, repent, and are baptized in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, morally speaking, Cornelius was probably as good as anyone, but still, even his personal goodness as overwhelming as it was, wasn't good enough to save him. If Cornelius' own personal goodness and benevolence wasn't good enough to save him, then even our own personal benevolence and kindness still isn't good enough to save us alone. Cornelius, just as us, had to be obedient to the gospel, obedient to God, and most importantly, obedient to the word and to Christ who died for our sins. In Acts 10, 3, we read that during a day of fasting, Cornelius prayed and an angel appeared to him in a vision. And in Acts 10, 31 through 32, it continues with, the angel said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard and thy alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon whose surname is Peter, he is lodged in the house, one of Simon the t- a Tanner, by the seaside, who, when he cometh, shall speak unto thee. This immediately just made me think, just whenever I was doing writing this, I've heard this before, but it, it really made me think about this. Why was it so necessary for Cornelius to send for for Peter? I mean, surely the angel knew God's plan of salvation. The angel knew the gospel. I mean, aren't angels supposed to be messengers of God? Why didn't the angel simply tell Cornelius what to do to be saved? Sure, it would have saved a lot of time if he had, wouldn't it? Take, for example, what if your best friend came up to you and told you that an angel of God had visited them and this angel had taught, taught them that in order to be saved that they had to repent and be baptized for the repentance of their sins, for the remission of their sins. And what would your reaction be? I think most here tonight would immediately know that friend had been lied to. Because 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, it tells us that the Father has committed the gospel, treasure to earthen vessels. The gospel has been given to us, and it is our responsibility and our duty as Christians to spread the gospel. Mark 16.15 tells us that if the gospel is to be spread throughout the world, that will be done by human instruments. But sometimes it makes me think that Some actually think that the lost in this world be saved without any effort on our part. That by some form of osmosis, that the word will just magically sink into their head and the lost will somehow be saved without any effort on our part. I think I was accused of that a few times in school when I I was younger on certain subjects. But I can honestly attest to the fact that the process of osmosis does not work when it comes to knowledge being transferred from a book into into a person's mind or into their brain. It didn't work for me and a few times, I even tried sleeping with that book underneath my pillow and it still didn't work. It doesn't work, it takes us, it takes people. But seriously, on this, we are saved to save others. Let me say that again, we are saved to save others. It's our duty, not just a duty, that implies more or less a chore. But I think 2 Corinthians 5.11 says it best when it says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That, that verse over the years has bothered me because sometimes I, I mean, I worry both sides of that subject, but knowing the terror of the Lord and the fate of those around us, that in itself should motivate us. How many of us know or knew of a close relative or or maybe our best friend that was doing something, if we knew that that action was going to kill that person, that it was going to cost them their life, we would step in and stop it. We would tell them, your mom tells you, told you don't play in the road for a reason, you will get hit by a car. But the same thing applies. But how many of us, if we knew that that same close friend or relative was lost, how many of us will step in and tell them and persuade them of, to tell them of Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation? Again, I'm just asking that question. But to continue on in Acts 10, 9, it says that the following day, the, the men dispatched by Cornelius neared the city of Joppa about noon. As they were approaching, Peter went to the roof of Simon's house for the sixth hour of prayer. That always made me think every time I read that. If we That doesn't... We think of houses today, and I know we see, you know, because pictures of the Middle East, issues that are going on with military in the different countries, Syria, Afghanistan, we understand the construction of houses were totally different there than they are here. If I've tried to go on top of my house to go pray, I'm gonna slide off and break the other hip. But back then, and we know those houses were flat, plus with the heat of the day, that was probably a good place to go, was to get up, elevated, and also get some breeze. So it it makes perfect sense when we read that, that Peter went to a quiet place, up away from everybody else, and again, probably it was cooler, a more pleasant place to be to pray. But this continues on again, and as we read in Acts 10, 11 through 12, with, during his prayer, Peter fell into a trance, and in a vision, he saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. Now we understand and we know under Mosaic law that animals were considered unclean unless it had a cloven hoof and chewed the cud. Jews were prohibited from eating anything considered unclean. Now it continues with that Peter was astonished when a voice said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And immediately he responded by saying, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Then the voice said, What God hath cleansed, that call not though common. That statement was made three times. That statement was made three times. I've heard it said, maybe Peter was just that dense and he couldn't, he wouldn't understand, and had to be repeated for that to sink in. I've also heard it explained that the three represented deity. And that that was a way of convincing Peter that this message truly was from God. So either way, so what was the meaning of Peter's vision here? Obviously, it teaches that we may eat meats which were formerly considered to be unclean under the old law. But this, this, this vision had a deeper meaning. God had taught Peter that people who had been looked upon as unclean in the past were now to be regarded as clean. Acts 10.28 says, Peter said, God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, up to this point in time in the New Testament church, which probably amounted to a period, just a ballpark of around four years from most research I've done. During this period, the gospel, had only been preached to the Jews. However, people of all nations were to be part of God's kingdom according to Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. It was now time for the Gentiles to be part of Christ's church. The Lord was preparing Peter for the task of preaching the first gospel sermon to them, to the Gentiles. Now Peter, was still on the roof trying to figure out the meaning of what he had just seen and just happened to him when the messengers from Cornelius arrived and asked Peter if Peter was there. The Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and said, Behold, three men seek thee, arise therefore and get thee down and go to them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them, that's Acts 10, 19-20. And Peter went on, went to the gate, and asked why they had come to see him. They had explained what had happened to Cornelius, and asked Peter to go preach to Cornelius and his family. Then Peter, Peter did more or less an unthinkable, time, unthinkable thing for that period of time. He, Peter took those Gentiles, those three Gentiles, into the house of a Hebrew to spend the night. Up to that point, that was totally unheard of for that time. But according to the angel and the Holy Spirit, borrow a line from a song, times were a-changing. So the next day, Peter and the messengers from Cornelius, they set out for Caesarea. Peter was accompanied by six of his Jewish brethren often wondered why Peter took six of his Jewish brethren with him. I mean, surely, I mean, Peter knew what he was going to say. Peter knew the gospel. He was more than competent to deliver that message to Cornelius. But Peter knew he was about to engage in something that was unprecedented for the time by bringing the gospel to a Gentile. So Peter, knowing what was going would probably be contested in the future Peter took along witnesses who could attest to what was about to happen now when Peter arrived at the home of Cornelius he Cornelius met Peter and fell down at his feet and worshiped him acts 10:26 says tells us that Peter said stand up I myself am a man this statement by Peter it just blows up in the face of of the Catholic faith, they believe that Peter was the first Pope and that the Pope is somehow God's personal messenger here on earth, that the Pope somehow is equal to deity. But here, Peter tells Cornelius to get up, don't bow to me. I am simply a man just like you. I can tell you, I've used this scripture, I, I love this to bring it up to some, you know, when I'm having a discussion with some of my Catholic friends. I keep asking them if Peter was the first pope, then why did he tell Cornelius to get up? And why did he tell him I too am just a man? But I usually don't get an answer from any of them up on that question. But continuing on, Peter asked, why he had been called and Cornelius repeated his encounter with the angel and told how he had been instructed to send for Peter. Cornelius had called together his kinsmen and his near friends for this occasion. He said, now therefore we are all here present here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. That's Acts 10:33. Peter started by saying Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And that's Acts 10, 34 through 35. Peter learned his lesson from that vision. He now understood that all men, both Jew and Gentile, were subject to God's saving grace. And Peter preached Jesus them we read this in Acts 10 36 through 43 which we will take a minute to take a look at starting in verse 36 says the word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ he is Lord of all that word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Now, this account of the conversion of Cornelius continues in Acts 10, through 48, where it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out onto the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, then asked them him to stay, and they then asked him to stay a few days. So we read that Cornelius and his family heard the gospel and believed and they were baptized this being so important this being the first conversion of a non-jew I've heard the argument several times that the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch I mean that had to come first he had to be the first gentile conversion I mean that was recorded in acts chapter 8 but we read In Acts 8.27, we read that the eunuch was returning from Jerusalem from going there to worship. Read read 8.27 says, So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, according to Jewish law, only Jews were allowed to enter the temple for worship. And the eunuch, he hadn't gone to worship Christ because he hadn't been taught Christ by Philip yet. Plus, we read of Peter being called before the other apostles in Judea to explain why he preached salvation to Cornelius, a Gentile. And this begs the question that if the eunuch was the first conversion, then why didn't they call Philip for them to explain? So Cornelius, the centurion, was the first conversion, at least the one we the first we have recorded of. But this account of the confrontation that Peter had from the other <coughs> apostles and the brethren is recorded in Acts 11, starting with verse one and following. It says, "Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard." that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up from Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went in to circumcised men and ate with them. Saying so continues on. But also in Acts 15, seven, we read of Peter referring to the conversion of the first Gentile by saying, men and brethren, you know that A good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles, by my mouth, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now Cornelius knew something of Christ before Peter Peter preached to him. However, he didn't have the faith in the Son of God yet, nor did he have remission of sins prior to Peter's visit. And Luke makes this perfectly clear that his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation came to him through the message delivered to him by Peter. So you can understand why this account of this conversion of Cornelius is so important to us today. Plus, with all the important facts that are contained in this account, why it's important for us to know and to understand what took place in this conversion but i think one of the important things in this account is the subject of decisions and the importance of our decisions i mean we make decisions we make decisions every day we make decisions every minute of every day even in our subconscious we're making decisions all the time we're making decisions where to go, what to do, what are we gonna do after church? When's this guy gonna shut up? I mean, I mean, we're making decisions all the time. Some decisions are simple. Some decisions are small. Some we feel are of no consequence. But some are big decisions. Some are major life altering decisions and some have major consequences in our life. Some may even seem simple and small at the time, but they have such major impact later in our lives. Some we think are major issues and big problems may turn out to be basically nothing at all. I know some friends of mine who've been faced with life, life-changing decisions at the time and I thought that what was happening to them, you know, was going to be so life altering forever. But years later, I mean, what turned out that they thought was, was so catastrophic and life ending at the time, it turned out to actually be one of the biggest blessings in their life. One, a former boss of mine. I worked with this guy probably for oh just over a year before I actually met him. Talked to him on the phone a lot of times, but he was hired after I was. And I was always on job sites and was out, you know, way out of town and out of state even most of the time. And when I did get back to the office, he was usually someplace else, you know, related to work. But after we met each other and after situations changed, we actually became pretty good friends. We both showed up to work early, ended up staying late, just out of dedication to our job. But that gave us a lot of time to to get acquainted and to talk and we'd like to say we just became pretty good friends. He was pretty much in a really stressful job. And a lot of the reason was he mainly he made it that way. I was a little more laid back about it, and he pretty much stressed out about it. And we had just reached a point where we had lost a major contract, and it was gonna really affect the office. Uh, we are gonna end up probably having layoffs, and but he was really stressing out about it that afternoon. <clears throat> he stressed about that so much, he actually had a heart attack that night. And the next day, and I was at the hospital to see him and he was still just stressing out about everything and about the heart attack and about losing the contract. I just told him he had to let it go or it's gonna kill him. Uh, I mean it was pretty evident I just we talked a long time about it. Well we talked, and again we talked several times after that and really to make a long story short he eventually he, he quit that job and took a job another just totally unrelated field and uh, even in another state and it was years later I was able to visit with him and he told me that losing that contract that was probably about the best thing that ever happened to him he had a better job less stress in his life and it turns out he and his wife had been having problems because of all the stress he was having and they were almost basically living a second honeymoon according to him. So that crisis actually turned out to be a great blessing in his life. You know, other times it might be medical issues and the decisions we make can have such an impact on our life. Some positive and some negative. It depends on, on how we handle it. Another friend he had been having a lot of issues uh, Spinal issues, degradation of those you know, bone structure. Anyway, he'd had a few surgeries. And similar to mine, and we were uh, we were talking. It turns out he had been trying to find me that afternoon. And uh, it turned out he had got a report from his doctor it just wasn't healing as fast as it should. And uh, we just kept talking because he had made the statement that he just couldn't put up with the pain. And which worried me, and I just kept talking to him until, you know, I felt that everything was fine. And I just kept telling him, you know, if we need to find some help, we'll find some help. If we need to find another doctor, we'll find another doctor. But uh, turned out a few days later, he put a gun to his head and killed himself. And he told his family he just couldn't handle the pain anymore. And again, that decision. Impacted his life so greatly, but not only that, it impacted his eternal life. And every time I think about it, and the problems he had, it they still it was problems that would pass. It was problems that he could we could we could get treatment for. We'd get other doctors. But that decision is going to affect him throughout eternity. And I just you know we just pray for grace in that situation. That. That's one of those problems and situations in life that a person's decision. It, it just they didn't, they just didn't think it through, or for whatever reason. But all we can do is pray, pray for grace at that time. But it, it I bring that up because it makes sort of makes a lot of those other problems in life it just seem so small. But still, I had another. I got another friend who was faced with uh, another situation. It was another, if she had a serious illness, she had cancer. And uh, she had to go through the treatments. I know a lot of, some of y'all here know what I'm talking about. And it's not a fun, it's not a fun experience. But she decided to, to fight that. And of course, when she, when she found out, she was, you know, she was devastated. And then on top of that, she had a husband whose, whose words were she he didn't want to be tied down to an invalid, so he left her, so that was on top of that. So through a lot of tears, through a rumors, even financial problems, she went through all that, plus the treatments, but she defeated the cancer. She ended up meeting someone, who just treats her like gold and they're they're just as happy as can be. At that time when she got that diagnosis she thought her life was over but by making the right decisions and the strength of a lot of friends things turned out to be just fine. And she has a whole I don't know how to put it, a whole gaggle of grandkids now that she spends her times with and so Those life, you know, life-altering decisions, she faced it head on and got through it. But it's it's the decisions we make when we're faced with the challenges of life and how it's going to impact us. And take for instance, referring back to Cornelius and his decision, those decisions which put things into motion long before peter ever showed up on the scene all are leading up to the most important point in his life those decisions to rule over the jews with respect those decisions to give the jews who he was over and and who were in need who he gave to them gave alms to them and instead of being arrogant and ruling over him you know like keeping them under his thumb He helped them out. Cornelius had, he made the decision to treat his fellow man with compassion. But Cornelius also made the decision to seek out God and to pray for guidance. Again, these decisions ultimately led to Peter showing up and his family teaching them what they must do to be saved. Another major point I'd like to make that being through the decisions decision Cornelius had made after hearing God's will and the gospel of Christ. He didn't tell Peter to come back another day when it was more convenient. He didn't wait till he had heard the gospel two times, four times, 20 times, 100 times. He responded the very same night that Peter preached to him the gospel, the first time, one time. And Cornelius knew what to do on that first time. It begs the question that if you haven't been baptized, how many times do you need to hear the gospel before you accept Christ and be baptized? Or if you've fallen away, you need the prayers and forgiveness of the church and of Christ and God, how many times do you need to hear the gospel? Yet even another question. What about our friends, family, neighbors who are lost? How many times are we going to wait before we tell them of that good news? How many times are we gonna let pass by before we tell them about the salvation of Jesus Christ? Decisions. Some small, some big. Some have major impact on our life, some don't. But the question, when it comes down to it, before our, when we come before our Lord, God and maker, the question is what will our answer be when we're asked what we will do concerning our salvation? If you have needs, the church, or you wish to be baptized, you just need prayers, we offer this, extend, extend this invitation to you at this time, so we stand and sing.